We have been duped by feminism, sexual liberation, and antidepressants. We have been told that we are powerful and free now as women, but we feel tired, wired, and bitter. We're mostly eating right, exercising, and meditating, wrangling to-do lists, and arranging playdates, and yet there's a haunting hollowness beneath the huge complaints. What if I told you that there is a huge storehouse, a reservoir of energy inside of you that has not been tapped, that you could feel light and pulsing, excited and alive in ways that a wellness lifestyle cannot deliver, that you could trust yourself, that the world could feel safe and that unexpected and expected delights could start to illuminate your path. No coach, therapist, doctor, or guru required. Just you learning to get real, present, and attentive with you. I feel like I'm here to matchmake your inner parts for the greatest love affair ever written. I want to help you learn first where you're buying eggs from the hardware store, which is the source of all pain. I want to help you master entering through the upset, which is the only spiritual practice you'll ever need and to get real comfortable putting on your villain crown, which is, in my opinion, the key to true power. And then you'll attune to your inner yes so you can live the life defined by the specific pleasure of who you are. I am so excited to announce my latest book called The Reclaimed Woman, which is available for pre-order now. So if you head to the link in show notes, you can learn more about bonuses, events, and companion offerings. And I cannot wait to see your gorgeous face on the path. I'm Dr. Kelly Brogan. You may know me as a New York Times bestselling author of a book with an exploding pill on the cover, renegade psychiatrist, pole dancer, or honorary member of the Disinformation Dozen. What can I say? I'm a born provocateur. I've spent most of my recent life exposing deceptions, connecting dots, and discovering the secret places my inner victim is still waiting to be liberated. And now I feel called to help you reclaim all of your parts, your health, your sexuality, your power, and your expression so that you can finally truly own yourself. I want to ignite in you that inner knowing and the pulsing vitality that lives beneath your disempowerment, disconnection, and resentment so that you can audaciously, courageously, and playfully alchemize your struggle into the specific pleasure of who you are. This is Reclamation Radio, a Soul Fire production. The following is a live stream recording that I shared about my Calm Body Clear Mind workshop where I consolidate simple lifestyle hacks that allow you to taste what it is to reclaim your power of choice and change your story. You can learn more at kellybroganmd.com forward slash calm dash body and at the link in show notes. I have described the most important relationship that you will ever have as being the one that you have with your body. It's not just like your body that you can touch. I think it's the experience of having chosen, if you believe this, to incarnate literally the whole mysterious experience that we opted in for of being in a body and what that entails. And it entails experiences 
that can look like what we call symptoms and look like unexpected potential adversity that I'm going to talk about how it is that we're set up to be at war with the body and what it is to heal this relationship. What it is, It's the same thing as it is to heal every other relationship in your life, including with the government, including with your husband, including with your annoying cat, whatever. It's the same thing. It's moving from a consciousness of fear and control into one of trust and curiosity. And there are ways that we can begin to expand into the, it's holofractal, right? So as one relationship is, so others will be, right? So you can expand the field of your trust and curiosity-based relationships so much more easily when you have this foundation. I actually think in the reclamation of your relationship to your body, to the experience of symptoms, to the experience of what you're calling health, right? So health is not just not being dead. Health is not just the absence of disease and illness. Health is, for many of us in this more holistic space, it's a process of self-discovery. It's like you are walking yourself home to you. You are remembering who it is that you've always been. And again, if this may be part of your belief system, perhaps we chose to forget so we could have the delight of remembering. I often reference this Alan Watts lecture where he talks about what it would be like if we could be in charge of our dreams. So the first night you have all the incredible sex and the second night you go on this wild adventure and the third night you eat all the amazing food. And then by the seventh night, you're like, you know what? You make it up. (laughs) Somebody else make it up because it's so much more delightful when we have that element of surprise. And I would add that alchemy is what's on deck for all of us right now. And that this experience of being able to turn mud into lotus, shit into gold, to be able to access within this vessel of a body, what it is to turn what we are hurting over, what we are hating about into what delights us into what feels expansive and free and even pleasurable. That's what we came here for. So the experience of healing this relationship, you may know that I like to think a lot about life in the world in terms of polarity. So masculine, feminine polarity, you could call it yin yang, whatever. I like gendered terms. So I think about the experience of exercising commitment and focused attention as being fundamentally masculine traits, let's say masculine behaviors. So a lot of what we do when we make the choice to reclaim our health, right? I know what it takes. And I know how powerfully expansive it is to heal this relationship to the masculine. And maybe a better word is mature it. So when you are maturing your relationship to your masculine, what you're doing is you are lovingly working with commitment, follow through, and you are honoring the impulse. The more we do that in every dimension of our life, and we've been taught, and I'll talk about why, not to do that. We've been taught that our impulses are not to be trusted. So the undoing of that is to begin to trust your impulse. So you trusted the impulse to be here. That was your healthy, mature masculine holding space for your feminine. You engage in these kinds of lifestyle commitments. And most importantly, because the greatest gift of the masculine in all of us is attention, where we put our attention. That's the masculine power. So when you focus, you're choosing, right? To focus your attention somewhere. 
you're honoring the impulse that said, look at me, <laughs> look over here, pay attention here. And so when you begin to exercise your power to commit, to follow through, and to really mature your masculine competence, it starts with honoring the small yes, that whisper of a, there's something here. And most of the folks that you can see on our outcomes page, they knew long before they actually engaged in health reclamation, they knew already what they had to do, right? They knew that there was a big step and then it was just waiting for the readiness, this very ephemeral force, which is the readiness. And I often say that you're ready when moving in the direction of change feels like relief, that the relief feels more powerful than any sort of fear associated with the movement towards the unknown. So a lot of the yes that you're holding space for, but probably you don't really have a good sense what you want in your life. You know what you don't want? That's normally where we start. Like, I don't like the job. I don't like the relationship. I'm sick of this house. My car sucks. We are so habituated to our no that actually we begin to live off of the small sort of thrills of that repeated pattern of encountering disappointment and resentment and frustration. So we don't ever really get to explore our yes, because we haven't created that safe container, that safe space to honor that little yes that is beneath all of that big pile of no. And this, I think, actually stems from some pretty cardinal dynamics for all of us. There is a psychiatrist I often reference, Alexander Lowen, who wrote a book called Fear of Life. And I do think that's what we're dealing with. We think we're afraid of death and actually we're afraid of life. We're afraid of living. And for good reason, not just because like, oh, what if I'm so beautiful and wealthy and popular and well, I will know what to do with that. Yes. And it's deeper because early in our childhoods, through seemingly mundane, but very insidious sort of sociocultural conditioning, we are pit against our vital force. I like to call it our eros. We are pit against this. We are put at war with our own life force energy. Whether you think this was done systematically, intentionally, and you're some kind of crazy conspiracy theorist, or it's just the nature of the human experience and parenting and family dynamics, it doesn't matter because, you know, whether it's being told when, you know, you should eat and being told how much you should eat, whether it's food being used as rewards, whether it's the fact that you have to raise your hand to go pee-pee as a five-year-old and you don't get to just learn when it's time for you to go pee-pee, all of these sort of daily dynamics. And then you pile on, of course, doctor's visits and physical exams and birth and all of the ways that we are channeled and funneled into a system that says, you don't know best, somebody else does and don't trust yourself, you're not an expert on you. There's another expert you can consult on you. And of course, then there's the role of our relationship to our sexuality and how most of us grew up in households where it was not to be spoken of, or it was not allowed, or we were punished and shamed for any emergent elements of our own sexual energy. This is how I would, all of us are set up for this warfare consciousness. And this warfare consciousness, I often call victim consciousness. 
And victim consciousness has a lot of hallmarks. The languaging of victim consciousness is the easiest way to spot it because there is, can be like a whispering in your own mind, or it's the way you speak to your friends or talk to others. I sometimes call it commiseration connection. It's this habit of complaining, but the language will often include, I can't, I have to, and you can, and you don't have to. That's the truth. But we get so in this pattern of understanding ourselves to be imprisoned. You could go so far as to say enslaved that we don't know that we are the ones who have the keys. I mean, it sounds so cliche and it's actually true. I've witnessed it hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. I've experienced it myself. You have the key. You've always had the key. And you are, even from childhood, when we chose to meaning make about our traumas in a certain way, of course, we had good reason to choose that way, to say, I am, I must be a bad person because my uncle did this thing to me right? There are strategic ways that we, because of our like dependency and helplessness as children, that we choose to survive, we choose to narrate. And there is no process of initiating any of us into adult consciousness and the reclamation of our power that honestly we've always had as divine beings. And somehow we end up walking around adults in essentially big girl clothes. And we still are dealing with the same psychology that never was matured from earlier in our lives. So this kind of like, no fair, why me? I hate this. You know, if you're a more colorful speaker like me, it will be like, fuck this. That's often what rings through me. But then it's this subtle sense that something is wrong with you. I've been told by most of the patients that I have facilitated health reclamation with alongside and through that what I offered them was simply the permission to no longer believe that there's something wrong with them. And I work with this every day. I have the impulse, for example, in my personal life, I have the impulse to move. Like I want to move houses and I live in a beautiful house. And I left my best girlfriend a message last night and I said, I'm really feeling the part of me that thinks that something is wrong with me. Like what is wrong with me <laughs> that I would choose to move out of this house? Everything is okay. My animals are happy. I have what I need. Why would I move? Am I just that fucked up that I would just create drama and create challenges for myself? What's wrong with me? And so I can still to this day, 14 or so years after initiating myself through my own protocol and resolving my autoimmune condition, I can still to this day meet that part of me that feels like, wow, I'm really damaged beyond repair. And honestly, the only difference is that now it's just a part of me. It's not the mantra of my life. It's not the narrative that I am living through and with. And I do think that when I look over the course of my, I like to call it a becoming <laughs> because awakening is very precious and self-important, I feel like. and individuation process is a little psychological. So I like to think of myself as becoming. It's not I'm necessarily becoming better. And that's a very tricky trap to fall into. So I'm just becoming over these years. I'm just becoming. And if you watch the videos in the Calm Body workshop, you can see that it's me, but also so different. It's so different. And when I think about what is different, the chief defining feature 
of that shift is anxiety. It's the discomfort of being. 15 years ago, I was so uncomfortable being in my skin all the time. And whether I was dealing with illness or symptoms or just making my way to a meeting, I was anxious. I was afraid. It's like you're sweating and the mask might slip off any moment. So there's all these vigilant, but unconscious defenses and all these things that we do that end up hurting ourselves and other people because we don't know that we have a choice. And I often say you don't actually have a choice until you know that you do. And over these years, I have actually engaged in a practice of laughing at my ridiculousness and meeting new aspects of my shameful self and being able to be like, yeah, wow, cool. That's there now too. You know what? I did this really shady thing the other day and I want to apologize for it. This kind of experience of just, I'm here, I'm here. I'm just here for an experience coming into this body. I have all of these aspects of myself. They're all here, the good and the bad. It's all here. You know, what are you about? So part of what is reclaimed as that experience of existential anxiety begins to transform over this process, the ritual initiation to this journey was and is, and I am a passionate believer that it is the lifestyle reclamation. So when I said, you don't have a choice until you know that you do the way that you do in my very biased experience is that you engage in something like vital mind reset or a similar protocol where you enter into a field of personal responsibility where victim consciousness cannot go unnoticed by you or anyone else in the community. And you begin to exercise, mature, and really devote that masculine energy of attention, follow through and commitment so that you can begin to grow the container for this becoming, for your expression. And then you forevermore, I have a choice. I have a choice about what to eat for breakfast. I have a choice about what kind of water to drink. I have a choice about what time to go to bed. I have a choice about how I'm going to interact with the objective toxicity that we have generated as humans on this plane. I have a choice about the first thing that I do in the morning. And I have a choice about what story I'm going to tell about my life. I have a choice about how I'm going to speak. And then you have choices about how you're going to interact with the space that you're walking. The choices, just it's like an accordion. They just open up. And that level of empowerment, I think we all imagine we want, but we probably aren't ready to actually step into until we are. And that's why I'm a big believer in starting with a ritualized reclamation of lifestyle choices. Before you start assessing the health of all of the relationships in your life and what is your purpose and are you living your dharma, how about you just get right with your lifestyle choices? How about you just get right with your body? How about you just start to care and really turn your attention towards yourself? I'm a big believer in sacred selfishness. I think it's one of the truisms of the human experience, which is that every single thing we do we do for ourselves to meet our own needs. And when we are pretending otherwise, oh my God, it is a torture chamber of very draining dynamics. So part of really resolving that gaslight that you're doing anything in your life for anybody other than yourself is to actually do something for yourself. 
and to actually say, you know what, for a month of my life, this is what my attention is going to be on me, on me, on everything that matters to me, beginning with the, I call it the chopping wood, carrying water. So before I open up to questions, I, and I believe there are many, I hope to get to a lot of them because you can see I like to chitty chat. So I will do my best to get through as many as I can. I want to just briefly tell you my story in case you don't know it. And this narrative and this story is just a story. So it's just the story I like to tell about my experience. And maybe that story will change in the future. But you may know that I am totally conventionally trained. So I come from, my mom is Italian and I am second generation. And anyone who has immigrant parents knows that there is a lot of power that is vested in the system. So I basically had to get straight A's and I had to go to a good school and I had to get a lucrative job, not an artsy job, a real job, like a lawyer or a doctor, whatever. So I studied at MIT, as you do, and I worked a suicide hotline there. Like fate would have it. I don't know why I chose to do that. Who does that in their spare time? But I did. And I probably like the thrill of it, I guess. And so I worked a suicide hotline and I was supervised by psychiatrists. And that was the first time that I encountered the intensity of my discomfort with human suffering. Like how much I needed human suffering to go away. And so I saw, okay, wow, psychiatry has this figured out. They've cracked the code. They have the solutions. And all you need to do is connect these people who are really struggling with psychiatrists and then everyone feels better. So I actually went on to become a psychiatrist for that reason, because I felt more in control. I felt less in contact with my own discomfort, my discomfort about other people's discomfort. And it worked out well for a while, I would say. It wasn't until I was specializing at the fellowship level in prescribing all manner of psychiatric medications to pregnant and breastfeeding women. That was actually my specialty. I was one of the first 300 in the world to specialize in reproductive psychiatry, which became necessary as a specialization in psychiatry because one in four women of reproductive age at the time, I imagine it may even be more now, were entering pregnancy on an antidepressant or a sleep med or an anti-anxiety med or a mood stabilizer, these terms and titles. And when I was specializing, I actually was pregnant with my first. And I remember having this feeling as I was writing a prescription to a pregnant woman that I would never take this medication. And here I am sitting there telling her about the 25,000 cases in the literature and how there's not really a signal of teratogenicity and it's relatively safe and your depression is so much more dangerous. So it's probably a great idea to just continue your medication. Everything's going to be fine. And I'm thinking, I would never take this. I don't care what you say. That is called cognitive dissonance. So when something in your lived experience does not fit with the held beliefs that are pre-existing, so you have a lot of choices. At that point, I suppressed. That was the choice that I made. I suppressed that awareness. And it didn't come back into my field until 10 months postpartum when I was diagnosed with an autoimmune condition I'm sure many of you are familiar with called Hashimoto's thyroiditis. And I was diagnosed with Hashimoto's with some run-of-the-mill symptoms, like a lot of forgetfulness. 
I had really swung with my weight. I lost a ton of weight really quickly. And I thought that was great. And then I was like having edema, puffiness, having hair loss. And the diagnosis was rendered on a routine physical. So I don't even know because it's all like mom stuff, new mom stuff. Like, oh, everything's fine. It's new mom stuff. So it was a routine physical I was diagnosed. And I decided that the last thing I wanted to do was walk my little prescription over to CVS once a month for the rest of my life. I was not interested in that life. So it was honestly some degree of laziness. You could say it was some faded experience, who knows? And I went to a naturopath. I changed my diet in many of the ways that I now have protocolized in Vital Mind Reset. And it was less than a year that I watched in black and white on paper, the resolution and remission of my diagnosis. And moreover, I felt like a completely different person. Now I was not really sick. I was still functioning, but there were all of the like constipation or a little brain fog and my energy was all over the place. And I was just a chronically wound up person. And I began to shift in the space of that first year. And that was the beginning of the rest of my life. And that's why when you take the wheel and you do so in a field of belief that says, this is for me, I want this. And you can almost taste what's on the other side, which for me was freedom from this system that ironically I was a part of, of course, I wanted to free myself from it. I didn't know that at the time. Then the rest of your journey begins. So it was from that point that I went through the big no phase. So I'm a big believer that no comes first, then yes. So the big no phase was like a no to all of my training, a no to all pharmaceuticals, like a no to the whole system. I wrote a book with an exploding pill on the cover and it was many years of really sounding the alarm on what it is that we aren't told about conventional medications and the allopathic approach to chronic illness specifically. And from that place, I began to make contact with my yes. And actually the first, the pivot, the switch point of that was actually when my mentor, Dr. Nicholas Gonzalez, who has anointed the protocol and actually it's his detoxification approach, his approach to coffee enemas that is housed in Vital Mind Reset only. It's not in my books, it's not anywhere else. And that is to honor his legacy. When he died, In 2015, I went through yet another dark night of the soul and I decided I'm going to transition my career into one that feels good. And at the time I had been mostly focused on fighting against the system. My practice was built on medication tapers, helping women to come off of medication And I wanted to feel better every day. And so I decided to start celebrating outcomes. And that's when I started to publish case reports, case series, did a randomized control trial of Vital Mind Reset. And I made a sport, made a game out of dogma defying outcomes. Like, did you know that you could put Graves' disease or lupus or migraines or asthma or IBS or even schizophrenia or bipolar? all of these labels into lasting remission. Did you know that that's possible? And that is when I began to focus my my work on what is possible. Because I figure if you know what's possible, then your nascent feminine 
that little yes inside of you, that little I want that inside of you can come online. And if your masculine is mature enough, you can make the right choice for that feminine impulse and you can follow through on it and you can expand into this new layer of your becoming. You can have a deeper experience of okayness in your own skin. And you can begin to encounter moments of delight in your life, which are, I think, often present themselves when adversity is alchemized into pleasure. I've told the folks in Vital Life Project, my membership about this, but the other day I, and I imagine some of you were at Fit for Service, but I was coming back from Aubrey Marcus's event with his amazing community at Fit for Service. And I had a great experience there and my ranting and raving was very well-received and I get to the airport and I'm feeling really okay, which for me is like the Holy Grail. I don't always, even at this point still trust when I feel happy. I want to feel just deep okayness. Like I belong here. Like I literally belong here on this plane. So I'm feeling really okay. And I'm like, I want to make a list of something. I'm not really a big gratitude list kind of girl. I don't know. It's just never been in practice that's stuck for me. However, I sat down and I write at the top the title of this list I'm going to make. And it's like things that are going well. But then I am a believer in the maybe principle, which is like the things that go well, sometimes are really challenging afterward. And the things that are really challenging often are the best things. So what does that mean? What do I know whether it's well or not well? So I changed it to things that went delightfully today. And my list was not like, oh, I got a standing ovation at the talk. It was so great. My hair turned out okay. Yay. It was like, I lost my wallet and then I found it right? Like my suitcase didn't fit anywhere on the airplane. And then a guy moved his stuff a little bit and it fit right over my seat. So it's these little examples. And of course, they're the big ones, like how and why my mentor's death was one of the most pivotal elements of my becoming. How could that be? Right. I lost the most benevolent father figure I've known in this lifetime. And how could that ever be something other than terrible? Right. So the delight of that is part of what then we begin to experience regularly because you relate to adversity differently. So when you get an, a fever or a cough or you begin to struggle with sleeping or whatever, every little thing that happens in your healthscape and then when your relationship begins to deteriorate or you encounter a parenting challenge, you have this now well-established habit of turning towards it with curiosity because you've evolved and transformed that impulse that otherwise would be there to control, to submit it. This is the immature masculine. It's like, do what I say. It's the abusive energy of do what I say because I can't handle otherwise. There's a different way for you to relate to yourself. And I have absolutely related to myself that way with my health, even when I was in the developing of this protocol. In fact, I re-recorded all the videos at the beginning of pandemic three years ago, all 44 days, because I felt like, you know what? My energy has shifted and this can be lighter. I want to have an experience of so many of us doing this because we want to, 
because it's the most interesting adventure to see what happens when you change these variables in your life and the unexpected emerges because you're ready for the unexpected. What is the story that you've been telling? Like, I have this, or I'm sick, or I'm poor. It doesn't have to be about health because it's full of fractal. It's all connected. I'm destined to be alone. Like, nothing's going to help me. What is the story that you are really tired of? It's not actually the defining feature of your selfhood. It's a story. And I am living proof (laughs) that you can change that story. And actually it becomes fun to change the story over time. But the first big story you change is scary as hell. And that's why I believe this should only happen in like-minded community with people who share this commitment to resolving and transforming victim consciousness. So we're not going to coddle you. We're not going to do that. We're not going to like, oh, so sorry, you. This is about, I see you and let's see where else we can go together because really only you know, you know, what is the next step to take? And that impulse is what we're here to begin to strengthen a relationship to. So with that, I would love to open to questions. Is VMR possible when going through antidepressant withdrawal. Okay. So I'm just going to give a nutshell about the whole medication thing, because that is, so remember, this is the protocol that I used to resolve. I mean, now it's literally been over a decade. I have never taken thyroid hormone since. And I did when I was first diagnosed. So this is what I used to resolve my, now I'll say so-called because I have all sorts of queries into what autoimmune illness even is. However, to resolve my autoimmune condition, It is the same protocol that I then took into my private practice because I had dedicated my practice to helping women come off of meds. And it was a nightmare, a nightmare. And then when I said, well, I see what this, these changes did for me. So let me see if it makes their tapers easier. So now, and you, this is all in the program. So you don't have to remember any of this, but just so you've heard it, if you are thinking about coming off actually any medication, but if you're thinking the hardest ones to come off of are the psychiatric ones. So if you're thinking about coming off a medication, you do not touch it. You don't come off it before or during the protocol. You do the protocol first. So it's like setting up the room for the experience. That's what happens first. If you have already begun a taper and it's challenging, or let's say it's even going all right, those of us who have come off of medications know that it's the months after the last dose that can be the most challenging. So you will definitely still benefit from introducing VMR mid taper. You just wouldn't taper during that month, which honestly, that's a fine pace anyway. It's similar with panic attacks is similar, right? The anxiety about the anxiety can also become like, it almost takes on a life of its own and becomes this meta compounded challenge, right? You're trapped between this intervention that on some level, you know, is not a destination, right? It's either the benefits so-called are not going to be sustainable probably. And that's what the literature suggests, or it's just going to not feel good over time to be using this intervention. So you're trapped between that and the fact that you hate, I'll just use that word for dramatic flair. Mm -hmm. 
what's happening to you, right? This anxiety, the insomnia, this feeling of, as I was saying, maybe I could summarize discomfort in your own skin. Yeah. I bet come 9 PM, you're like, I, could I trade with somebody else? Please. Like, could I be in another self? And that trap is what needs to be alchemized. That trap is what needs to be transformed. And it's not like you're just going to be freed from the trap. Like there's some magic pill. If there were a magic pill, you wouldn't be asking me this question because you're already on it. Mm -hmm. Right. Unfortunately, or fortunately, there's not. And that's because we want, I think, I believe we want to go on this journey of discovering what was the message of this insomnia? What is it really about? Is it something with my blood sugar? Right. Which would suggest that it's just a simple tweak to my diet, a simple, but regimented and consistent tweak to my diet is going to resolve that. And then my body's going to say, thank you. And I'm going to sleep like a baby. Right. Or is it something in the pattern of my stimulus and stress over the course of the day? Is it something in my routine? Is it that I'm not capturing this magical 9 PM? If you're in the workshop, you know, I'm very passionate about 9 PM bedtime at least for a period of time, I've been doing it since 2015, but at least for a period of time in your life, just so you see. So we're learning the dialect of our symptoms. You have to learn what you're trying to tell you because your symptoms are you telling you about you. And what we are conditioned to believe is this horrible thing is happening. It has to stop for me to be okay. I totally get that. I get it. And that's why my answer to probably all these questions is going to be like, I don't like reset, just do it literally because the conditions that you must control in order to send that signal of safety to your nervous system. So that all these little kinks and no's in your body, meaning your body is saying, no, this is not working. They start to relax and then you can start to explore. I don't know if you drink coffee or whatever, then you can reintroduce something and, oh, wow, there's that anxiety. Whoa, it's back. Okay, now I know it's that thing, right? So this is a classic elimination diet sort of thing. And it's a really effective way to begin to decode a language. Even though it's you telling you about you, it's still a language. And from that place, you will have reconnected with yourself. So your first response to yourself is not, this sucks. I don't like this. Go away. Stop. Because that's how you're talking to yourself. And that's how we all do is how we all talk to ourselves when we are experiencing symptoms. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't focus on the meds piece because that will be, it's like people ask me too about smoking cigarettes, like all that stuff. Once these foundational needs are met, they're so much easier to just peel away. So you're not doing this to get off the meds. You might do this if you choose to, I would love that because I'll remember this conversation. It's just the greatest delight of my life to see over and over and over again that these shifts are possible and they don't take long. They really don't. I mean, the people having experiences in the workshop saw that in days. So I do think that part of what I want you to come away from this little chitty chat with is just the possibility that there's actually nothing wrong here. I know that sounds weird because insomnia can make a sane person crazy, literally. Mm -hmm. Trust me, I have a lot of experience with insomnia in my practice. Almost 100% of my patients dealt with insomnia at some point, sometimes for months on end, sometimes very severe. It can be the greatest initiation to yourself. So if you can start to reframe your experience as like, oh, wow, this is where the reclamation of my power begins. You know, you'll see this is, it's real. 
And it's, it's not just like your anxiety is gone. Your insomnia is better. When you go through it and you unite with your experience, there's all sorts of, I don't know, layers of your life that begin to, to shift. And so that's how big a deal this is. And it's not to suggest that what you're dealing with is not maybe in moments like pushing you to the brink, because I know firsthand and also through, through my patients, what that can be like. I mean, that's a big, one of the most regrettable things I did was sleep train my kids because I just didn't know better. I guess when you know better, you do better. There's no such thing as hypersensitivity because your sensitivity is always rightful. Your body is always interpreting according to the psychobiological term is your neuroception. So how are you perceiving safety or danger in the world? And there could be like a pile of laundry, right? On a chair in your room. And you can literally be cowering under your bed with a gun thinking that it's an invader, you know, intruder or some sort of perpetrator, or you could see it as a pile of laundry. So reclaiming our neuroception, which is to say that loud noise actually isn't dangerous to me. Or for me, weirdly, I don't like wind and fans. It's like, does something to my system that is really uncomfortable that my system registers as problematic. Why? Right. Part of that vigilance was a wise response, right? So that vigilance has served at some point in certain environments, in certain contexts. So part of how we catch all of the dimensions of ourselves up to the here and now, and to find more ease that's available to claim that ease is this foundational nervous system healing. It's like, Mm -hmm. we know because of Peter Levine's work and Stephen Porges's work, we know that there are different patterns of stress physiology, right? So as we adapted in our early trauma-based experiences, as we adapted, we recruited fight, flight, freeze. Often we add in fawning, which is appeasement, like coerced appeasement almost. And it served us the way that you can begin to exercise choice in those responses, or at least awareness in those responses, it starts with this foundational healing. And so while there's so much beautiful somatic work that can be done, I'm imagining some of you are even somatic experiencing practitioners or different kinds of somatic therapists. For me, that comes after, like now I do somatic experiencing work to help me with things like my startle reflex. If my girls come in the room and they don't announce that they're walking in the room, like I'm on the ceiling with my cat. For me, first comes a lifestyle protocol. First comes that fun. And in fact, sometimes I look at these people in the somatic experiencing world and I'm like, have you ever done something like VMR? Because it might be a lot more accessible to you to expand your capacity. Cause that's what this is about, right? Like your nervous system capacity for what is challenging, frustrating, triggering, scary, because why? You have the discernment. You're not in fight, flight, or freeze. You can see that it's a pile of laundry, right? You can perceive accurately. I mean, not to get into like sociopolitical realms, but this is so much of what happens in the activism space is that we see boogeymen all the time, all around us. I mean, it's really the same as germ theory. Like we see this scary stuff all around us. But if you look around the room you're in, like everything's actually fine, right? So we start to live in a scary reality, a dangerous reality. And of course, vigilance is 
you need vigilance in that reality. But when you can sort of reel it back in, you can make contact with your body's signals. You can start to like monitor them. Like what actually is happening in my body? Body, what do you need in this moment? Then everything can become more grounded in the here and now and fundamentally typically safer. But I think that comes later. I mean, for me, it was like a decade later, actually, that I started that work. Like I needed to heal my adrenals. I needed to heal my endocrine system. Like I needed to allow my gut to be functioning in a healthy way for years before I got into the nuances. And that's not to say like, you're going to be like struggling and suffering in this like quasi ADHD land, unmedicated ADHD land or anything like that. It's just to say that if you can shift your perspective to say, my body is still wisely responding, the more signals of safety I can send, the better. And the sooner my capacity to really assess whether something is dangerous or not will grow. And a lot of that, you know, I think does begin with this sort I call it like a 360 signal of safety. So that's why in in VMR there is there's a detox pillar, right? Which again comes from my mentor. And then conscious consumerism, what kind of stuff to buy, you know, like what kind of laundry detergent, et cetera. And then there is contemplative practice. And I was never a meditator, never until I for many karmic reasons, ended up in a Kundalini yoga training. And I fell in love with that form of meditation. Why? Because you get a quick hit because you feel it quickly. So the meditations, they're called medical meditations in this protocol are three minutes long. That's it. That's all you do three minutes every day. So it's not like 20 minutes watching your thoughts. I still find that challenging. And then of course it's very specific, but not super unique nutritional protocol. And the combination of those three things, plus a field, a community of people who are no longer investing energy, prana, loosh into their victim stories, which even in spiritual communities, I'm sure you've seen this. Like there is a lot of, when it comes to health and the body, there's a lot of like, oh, you know, that that's tough. Like, I guess you need to do that medication thing, doctor thing, emergency thing. Right. So, and I get it. Like I have, I happen to be a doctor, so I have an advantage, right? Like I have a stronger, I guess, like capacity to not freak out (laughs) in the face of these things. I don't know what it is, but I, I do know that it's the, the field of belief is very specific. And the way that we encourage people to speak as your words are spells This is all how, again, you send that signal of safety from this very comprehensive place. And it's possible. It's totally possible to shift. But I think it starts with, again, like I said before, coming from the perspective that nothing's actually wrong. Yeah, nothing's actually wrong. Thank you. Thank you. So I stopped imagining that I know what is best for anyone a long time ago, years ago, when I recognized that you're not ready till you're ready. Maybe you're never ready. And who am I to imagine that I know what's better or worse? All that I know for myself is that when I have this split, I call it the source of cognitive dissonance. When I have this split inside me, whether it's about eating a certain way, taking meds, being in a relationship that is fundamentally unhealthy for me, whatever it is, when I have a big one for me, I always talk about that I'm still working with is ordering from Amazon right? Like I order from Amazon, part of me feels entitled and wants to do that. And then another part of me is like, wow, you are participating very actively in like a really problematic field of energy, right? So there's a split inside of me. 
all of these little incoherent places are going to be sources of suffering. And it's energetic too, right? Because the more of these we have, the more shame we hold. And shame, it's like bad breath or something. Like it, people perceive it, they feel it, and it's so draining. It's the most costly emotional resonance, I think, of all. So if you would like to live your life without medication and you're curious about that adventure, but then you're saying, wow, I think it's going to be too hard, better stay on them. That split is a costly split. So that's why I say when you move in the direction of change and it feels like relief, if you choose to join us for this year's VMR and the moment you click, I'm a big believer in the moment you click invest, the moment you click pay, crazy magic happens right at that moment. I've invested in dozens and dozens of programs. And I know that's been true for me as well. When you walk in the direction of that choice and you click that button and you feel doing amazing stuff is coming. But if you were to get around that button and you click it and you're like, oh God, now I have to do this. But it's not the, it's not the energy, right? So you'll know if you play out the what if, the positive what if, we're so attuned to the negative what ifs, but you play out the positive what if, and you're like, what if coming off of meds is the beginning of the most amazing adventure in my life? What if coming off of meds is how I make contact with what the hell I'm here to do for my life? What if coming off of meds is actually what helps me to get clear on my relationship and whether to stay or go, right? Those kinds of what ifs will help you to contextualize. Yeah. What is an initiation that for most people, not all comes with tapering these medications. I always say that it is very, very special folks who find themselves in the terrain of psychiatric medication taper because these are strong humans. These are courageous humans and these are powerful people, right? I call them the canaries in the coal mine. So the most sensitive to how it is that we are wrongly living. We need these sentinels now more than ever before. And we need you like aligned, awake and empowered, ready to roll. So I'm really passionate, you know, about supporting people who feel this call. However, it is not for everyone. And that is totally fine. And I will just reiterate that there's no like tapering during the protocol. The protocol is meant to set the foundation for your most successful process. There's not actually tapering during the protocol. Not to get into the whole psychodynamic lecture about the individuation process. However, there is this journey home to ourselves, right? And we don't know that that's even what we are set up to do until we begin to have this sort of like rattling in the cage. I don't know what's happening. I feel like maturationally, my like 14 year old has more maturity than most of my 45 year old friends. I don't know what's going on, but in my generation, it's like in your thirties, forties, where this process, where you're presented an invitation to walk into this space of your becoming. And it necessarily involves understanding how it is that you have been projecting aspects of your mother and father all over the world, which is to say that you've been experiencing authority outside of yourself in the flavors of your mom and dad. And you have been experiencing yourself as helpless and dependent and particularly dependent on approval 
so that you can source love and security from these people. The resolution of that is to begin to understand that you have choices. I'm always just going to come back to the same mantra. So the way I resolve my victim consciousness in my health is to understand I have personal responsibility and choices. The way I resolve my victim consciousness in my romantic partnership is to understand that I have personal responsibility and choices. There is a point you can get to, and maybe you can get there quickly, where it's like, you know what? I'm going to honor this impulse. I'm going to be right, like in polarity with myself. I am going to be my own good husband. I am going to be that strong energy that says, baby, I got you. What are we doing? And you're going to say, if you want to do this, we're going to do it. And you're literally going to take your focus off of everyone and everything else and put it on you. That's part of why this program is not free because the investment is necessary to vectorize your attention. You're doing this thing. You're putting your attention on yourself. So it's not as relevant what everybody else thinks. And if you're doing something like this, from the energy of this is the good thing to do. This is what a good person does. Why are you bad people not doing this with me? It's not going to work. If you're doing this from the energy of, I actually think I might be ready to start to learn how to love myself and care about myself so that I can live in a world of love and care, right? Then it's like inspirational to other people and they become curious. So, you know, so many people who finish the protocol and the same in my private practice, it would be like, oh, I have to get everybody to do this. I got to get everyone to, no, you don't have to get anyone to, don't even try, please don't get anyone to do this, <laughs> right? Just model it, just be it, just own your choice. Just love on your yes that much that people are going to wonder, you know, just focus on yourself, bring the attention back inside, stay in your business. Is, is what it took me a long time to, to learn. So if you're just doing a diet, if you're just doing meditation, if you're just doing a detox methodology, you can definitely, you know, appreciate a lot of yield and gains. But when you do this 360 plus marinating, honestly, in the brainwashing that I am specially qualified to deliver to you all in this group field of people who believe that there are possibilities that they were never told, you know, existed. I'm just going to quickly, because I see this all the time and I tell myself this kind of thing too. Erin is saying, I'm a difficult case. What works for others doesn't work for me. And I would just say that if you want that to be true, it will be true. And I have struggled with, I call it terminal uniqueness. It's part of my woundology where I feel so different sometimes from other people that I can't imagine anybody could empathize with my particular struggles. And I convince myself that what others experience, like just won't translate like into my reality. Cause I'm that different. I actually think this kind of differentness, like this feeling of being like alien, like an outsider, like not belonging is part of that foundational childhood like rejection for our vital force essence that we experienced. How could you ever feel that there's hope for you, that you're like other people, that things are going to work out, right? If you were raised to believe something's fundamentally wrong with me, everything that I do is from a place of badness. And like, I only get love when I'm good. 
Okay. So while you feel unique, it's like in your uniqueness, like I'm sure so many people can relate. (laughs) So like how unique are you really? And what I would say is that you're not ready to change until you're ready because there are ways that we get our needs met by our struggle. Trust me, take it from me. Now I understand. I like laugh at myself. I'm like, wow, I must really love this like kink that I'm in. You know, we get our needs met through our struggle. Think about it, right? If you are chronically ill or you're chronically struggling, you don't have to learn how to say no because your illness does it for you, right? No, I can't go to that thing. No, I can't do this thing. No, I can't expand my business. No, I can't work on my relationship. No, I can't. And you actually don't have to ask for what you want, which is one of the harder things most of us will ever learn as adults is asking for what we want. So you don't have to ask for what you want because there is built-in compassion, sometimes pity, sometimes empathy, and caretaking, especially if you have regular healthcare providers, right? So it's built in a lot of our you know, basic needs and then even our, our need for belonging, right? Like when you have a diagnosis, I'm not saying you're dealing with this, but like when you have a diagnosis, you belong to the people who have that diagnosis. It's like a club. So there comes a point where the meeting of those needs through that approach feels more and more like empty, right? And that is often when people seek out another way, right? Like hence the burgeoning field of health reclamation and so-called alternative medicine. And it means that you're ready to meet your, your needs more directly. You're ready to learn what doesn't work for you, how to say no, which might for some of you be like how to order at a restaurant and order like a gluten dairy free meal and not feel like, you know, you're assaulting your waiter with your neuroticism, you know, whatever, like how, how do you live in a world where there are boundaries around your preferences where things don't work for you and you're owning that. Right. And then, you know, it's also learning to ask for what you want and to grow your capacity to receive it which takes time. You know, it does take time. And I don't know, you know, I don't know if this protocol is going to quote unquote work for you. Cause I don't even know what working for you means only, you know, and only you would have a way of knowing. I just know that if you feel that little, yes, honoring that little, yes, is the beginning of the new story. It's the beginning of the maturation of your inner polarities. It's like, you know, the king showing up (laughs) to, to put the seat out for the queen, but like all inside of yourself. And if you don't honor that impulse, right? So there are myriad ways that I have had impulses in my life that I told myself were stupid or embarrassing or like not what a professional does so many ways. And then there comes a point where you decide to honor it. 